lots of services come and go, so we always have to kind of be on the ball to know which ones have ended and which new ones have sprung up and who they cater for. Social prescribing seems to be everywhere. In England, nearly a million people will qualify for social prescribing schemes by 2023, according to the NHS long-term plan. From this year, around 1,000 social prescribing link workers will be funded within primary care networks. But what is social prescribing? How do you do it? And does it work? I'm Tom Nolan, GP in London and an associate editor for the BMJ. To help answer these questions, I'm joined by Chris Drinkwater, Professor of Primary Care Development at Northumbria University and author of a clinical update on social prescribing that has just been published on bmj.com. Hi, Chris. Hi. Nice to speak to you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and we also have on the line Louise Cook, a social prescribing link worker for Ways to Wellness a social prescribing service for people with long-term conditions in Newcastle. Hi, Louise. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you. Thanks again for, for joining us. So I think we really need to start with um, an explanation of social prescribing. Uh, Chris, what, what is it? Well, it, social prescribing has been around for quite a long time, but usually in sort of small scale and led by enthusiasts. And it partly reflects a change in the nature of the diseases that we deal with within the NHS, increasing numbers of long-term conditions, both physical and mental health long-term conditions, increasing concerns about older people and loneliness and the impact that that has on their health. And, and, and I suppose the sort of the bottom line here in terms of our own particular project, which is focused on people with physical long-term conditions, it, 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 it's about looking at what we call the social determinants of health. All the evidence demonstrates that whether you or not you get a long-term condition can very often be socially and behaviorally determined. Uh, think type 2 diabetes. Um, and certainly there are some issues around inequalities in health. Looking at Michael Marmot's figures around healthy life expectancy, the gap in healthy life expectancy is much greater uh, than the gap in life expectancy. Um, and, and if you're from a lower income group, you'll get a long-term condition earlier than you would if you were in a high income group. And you will also have more years living with a long-term condition. So some of this is about how do we get serious about addressing the social and behavioural factors that determine whether you get a long-term condition and, and your outcome if you do get a long-term condition and, and thinking about how you put that into place. Um, for me, I have some issues about the term prescribing. Um, this is, this is it, it, prescribing is a medical model um, and I think we have to remember that what's important for the doctor isn't always the same as what's important for the patient. And very often thinking about patients, it, it's the impact that the long-term condition has on their employment, the impact that it has on their life and social circumstances, um, rather than whether or not they're taking, taking the medication, whether or not they're 
uh, eating a good diet, whether or not they're taking physical act physical activity on a regular basis. So I think there are a whole bundle of issues here in terms of moving towards a much more patient-centered approach um, and, and thinking much more seriously about how we address what's important to the patient. Yeah, and where the term came from, was it about a patient going to their GP and instead of the GP prescribing a medication, they may prescribe a, an exercise prescription or is that, is that how it came about? I think that's, that's part, partly how it, how it came about. I mean, I am practice in a, a disadvantaged area of the inner West Newcastle. There was always a sense that um, what are we doing here? Uh, the circumstances in which people live their lives are, are determining uh, their health uh, and we need to think more broadly about how we address health issues. Um, so to an extent, I've been involved in a, a variety of small-scale social prescribing projects for at least the last sort of 20 years or so um, to look at how we do that, and, and it, partly around frustration around small-scale, wanting to do something with a bigger population, basically and look more seriously at it and so and i think the the, the social prescribing service you you currently run is called ways to wellness isn't it and um and louise there you you're one of the link workers for ways to wellness aren't you yes i'm one of the link workers um so we have a team that work together and we receive referrals from the gp surgery and we get in touch with the patients and we basically ask them to come in to see us to have a chat. It's generally over a cup of tea, so we make it quite relaxed and informal. So it's something completely different to what they used to, because a lot of the patients that we work with, they used to go into lots of formal appointments, whether it be at doctors, hospitals or with job centres. So we kind of try to do the opposite, make it a bit more welcoming. And we just give people the opportunity to talk with us. The first assessment that we do with them, it lasts for an hour. And as much as we do have some paperwork, we use a wellbeing star to measure what the client needs or what areas they need support in. But it's often done as a kind of generating a conversation and allowing the patient to talk. And from that, we get a lot of information and we can direct the conversation to get the information that we need. And a lot of the people, we ask them at the end, is that what you expected? And they say it's not what they thought it was going to be because they've just been allowed to talk and allowed to tell their story and tell us what the barriers are. And we involve them quite a lot in the assessment. It's not just us sitting ticking boxes without them seeing. They're involved in the paperwork. They see the star. They're plotting the points. And that gives them the confidence to think, well, actually, this for the first time, somebody's doing something that I want to do. And happy to go with that <laughs> so we use a well-being store um it has eight points which cover pretty much every aspect of a person's life so it's your lifestyle looking after yourself managing your symptoms work volunteer other activities that you do uh, there's a point for money where you live friends and family and the final one is feeling positive so in the assessment we generate a conversation around each of the points and then the numbered one to five so if you score one it means that it's 
a big issue that you're not even considering making any changes, almost like burying your head in the sand about what's happening there. And point five is as good as it gets. So as we do the assessment, if it was around lifestyle, it's looking at diet, exercise, sleep, smoking, alcohol, you would generate a conversation with patient around how do you feel you're doing in these areas some points might be good because people might have a healthy diet but they might say but I smoke and I do drink so it's kind of working out within that what areas that um, we could help with in that and what support they would like if they would even like to seek support because some people would say I do smoke but I'm not considering giving up and that's fine if that's where they're at at that point in time and we just kind of go around the points of the store and generate a conversation around each one and then plot together with the client where they think they are. Thanks so when you've helped identify where they are and where they'd like to go do you connect them with the services to help them achieve their goals? Different with different people. Some people are very aware of the things that they aren't doing right, but they aren't aware of what services they access to help improve that. So that's where we would step in and say, well, we know the area and these are a number of services that could help you stop smoking. So you could go to your pharmacist, you could go to your doctor. There's a specific service called Lifeline. Some you can... Um, go to yourself some will give you x amount of support over a certain amount of weeks so as a link worker we know lots of services in the area and can tailor it to that person as to what they would like or the type of service that would suit them best and some of those services that you're looking at are they to help people with things like financial stress yeah that's a, a big one after the health conditions itself um there's we help lots of people. There's lots of changes in the benefit system, which I'm sure a lot of people are aware of. And it's helping people navigate systems in relation to housing and benefits and debt um, as to how to access services and which services to go to, how which services will give you what type of help. Um, we had a meeting the other week where we were talking about this as a team and we... Um, managed to think of 14 services just in the west end of Newcastle and it's as a link worker knowing which services are best for which patient that comes along and whether it's geographically it's closest to their house or whether it's a women only service or whether it's somebody where you could go to a drop-in and be seen immediately that day or it sounds like you really need to have an incredible knowledge of what's available in your area yeah, and lots of services come and go, so we always have to kind of be on the ball to know which ones have ended and which new ones have sprung up and who they cater for, because some have age limits and different various criteria. Turning back to you, Chris, in the article you've written that the evidence here is small-scale, short-term, poorly designed and lack standardised outcome measures. I, I, I think there are lots of problems with the evidence and, 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 and I think in, in ter terms of outcome measures there are some issues in terms of uh, we've kind of got locked into a model in terms of uh, the NHS won't fund this unless it demonstrates that it's making savings in other areas in terms of secondary care costs or GP time um, uh, and we shouldn't really forget that the, at the end of the day, whether or not this benefits patients is incredibly important. So there are clearly some issues about, well, how do you best measure patient benefit? 
Um, we, when we were setting up, we looked at a number of different measures. We ended up with the well-being star partly because it, it's kind of used as a quality assurance tool by the link workers to make sure they cover all the bases. And it's something that's used in everyday practice by them to generate action plans for, for the clients and patients that they see. Uh, and, and so it, it's built into the way they work. And have you managed to measure success with your social prescribing service? Yeah. In, 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 in terms of ways to wellness in West Newcastle, um, it, essentially we, we have what's called an outcomes contract where we're paid on the basis of specific outcomes. Um, the, if you like, the front-end outcome that Louise has already talked about is the well-being star, uh, and we get a payment... Um, of any improvement on 1.5 on a second well-being star at six months. So if you think about the star, eight points, each numbered one to five, there are 40 points in all. Um, any improvement over 1.5 across the board at the second well-being star, we, we will get a payment. At, at the moment, we're averaging at about 3.1 improvement on the second well-being star. So we're well above the target level. The, the, the other repayment is that we are paid on savings on secondary care costs, scheduled and unscheduled admissions, A&E and outpatients. Um, and this has been done with a control cohort population. So this is a control comparison, basically. Um, at, at, at the moment, we're doing 11% better than our control population. So we're getting a full repayment in terms of secondary care costs. And we, we, have, we have looked at primary care aspect, uh, access and, and whether or not this saves GP time. Anecdotally, certainly our enthusiast GPs say we're saving them lots of time and providing a very valuable service. I think that there are, there are though some issues that um, most GPs will be aware of in terms of how do you count and what do you count in terms of access. Um, do you count telephone contacts? Do you count contacts with the nurse, with the, with, 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 with the healthcare practitioner, with the GP? Um, and a lot of practices uh, add up the numbers in slightly different ways. So it, it's quite difficult to get an accurate figure. You've described in your service, you've got 25 link workers for a population of around 100,000. With the new NHS plans in England, they're funding one link worker for about every 50,000 uh, population? I, I think that, that's a, a major challenge. I, I think from our point of view in terms of the service that we're operating in the West End of Newcastle, we're covering uh, essentially a population of 130,000 16 GP practices. Um, and we currently have 26 full-time equivalent link workers which is significantly more than you would get in, in, in terms of uh, rollout that's being proposed by NHS in England. Um, that sort of population, you'd only end up with about four link workers rather than 26. Uh, it, it's not a lot of time for an individual, particularly if they're going to be of benefit uh, to uh, 
some of the patients with the greatest level of need. I, I think there are also some issues in terms of who's going to train and who's going to provide supervision and support to these individuals because being a link worker can be a very challenging role. Um, a lot of it is about support from next door rather than advice from on high. And I think if we if we over-professionalize, you'll get a lot of advice from on high, which won't necessarily have the same sort of link uh, impact as having a link worker recruited from a local community who knows that community, knows the individuals within that community, uh, and is able to work with those individuals um, more effectively. And before we finish, I'd like to hear your tips for launching a, a successful social prescribing service. Uh, Louise, what advice would you give to someone starting out as a link worker? Um, it's building up the relationship with the patient. And if you can do that and gain a little bit of trust, you will generally get a little bit more from the patient that, that you're working with. And I think the main thing as a link worker is acknowledging what it is that they want to do as their priority, but also allowing them to do it and giving them the confidence and the ability to progress on their goals. Because I think sometimes as a link worker, it's quite easy for you just to think, well, I'll just make the call or I'll help fill the form in. But actually, you're not then helping the patient. So sometimes taking that little step back and praising the person that you're working with for the things that they have done because a little bit of praise goes a long way with a lot of the people that we work with and it just builds the confidence to allow them to then think well if I've done this and I'm getting a lot of praise I'll be able to access more services or make more phone calls and I think that is a good tip for a link worker to not forget the small things that the person's done is actually quite a big thing for them to have achieved and not yep. to kind of forget that um, and okay. a little bit of praise goes a long way great and Chris I'm going to turn the question around a little bit and and ask you know, is there anything you wish you'd done differently uh, um, lot, I, I mean I think for me that the, there's an issue about thinking through the model that you're going to use and being prepared to adapt and modify that model as you move forward depending on the feedback that you're getting from link workers and from GPs about how the service is working. Um, we've now got very good systems for getting feedback from clients and from link workers um, and uh, we think we've got a fairly robust model um, but that hasn't always been easy to put into place because I think the, the key element of that is this whole approach around personalization and being holistic and thinking through what's important to the patient rather than what's important to the doctor. And, and I suppose one of my longer-term worries is if, if we focus too much on physical activity and diet, um, it, it tends to have a negative impact. Whereas if we focus much more on um, social activities and peer support and getting together groups of people who can talk about and, and support one another in terms of how they look after themselves, that's a much more effective way forward. You've been listening to Chris Drinkwater and Louise Cook talk about social prescribing. 
The clinical update is now available on bmj.com. That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back soon with more free CPD. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss out on those. I'm Tom Nolan. Bye for now.